Thank you for that good reminder, Josiah, Karen, Sue. Let's pray together. Father, we would quiet our hearts. Just clear our minds at this time. May your Holy Spirit take your word and use it well within us, that we would apply it to our living, that it would work towards the conforming of your church and your people to the image of Christ. Father, even as Josiah just reminded us that that as we apply the word of God in our lives and we live out the truths of Christ, that we would have generational influence. That's our prayer. Father, this dark world needs light, and your church is called to be light. Help us to be such. Use your word now, I pray, with great effectiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the last uh, Sunday and today, we're in a two-part Thanksgiving series, and I wanted us to, to visit a couple of the core values of God's church. And we talked about the core value of gratitude last week. And our point was that God's people are thankful people. And um, today, I want us to see closely related to that, that there is an additional core value related there, that, and that is the core value of generosity. God's people are generous people And so we cover our thanksgiving, don't we? We are thankful. That's the thanks part. We're people of gratitude. And today, the giving part. We're generous people. Thanksgiving. It is interesting when we turn in our Bibles that often those two concepts are interlinked. God's people are grateful people. And out of their gratitude of the work of the gospel within them as God's people, they end up being generous people. I'd like to show you this from the very beginning of the early church and have us begin by laying a foundation of our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 by first turning to Acts chapter 4. I want to show you that even in the earliest days of the church, as Christ has been to the cross, he was buried, he rose again, 40 days later, he ascends into heaven. The apostles now, emboldened by his resurrection, and have that resurrection power and the authority given to them as our Lord ascended into heaven. He gave them all power to go out and to preach the gospel into the uttermost uttermost parts of the world. The gospel begins to spread. The church begins to be planted. In Acts chapter 4, this is even before the apostle Paul and his great missionary journeys Uh, The church is just fledgling. It is new. It is in Jerusalem. And there, people begin to turn to Christ. I want you to see that from the very beginning, in the earliest days, following the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of the new covenant, that in the church, one of the core values was generosity. Let's read about it. It's Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed 
to each as any had need. You get what's going on here, don't you? The gospel begins to do its work. People begin to follow Christ. They're gathered together to worship God and worship Christ together under the powerful preaching of the apostles, personally instructed by Christ. They are now so emboldened by the resurrection power of Christ. They, with their own eyes, have borne witness and testimony of the resurrection of Christ. And it even says that as they gathered there and the church began to grow, that there were none in need because if someone saw in the church body somebody who was in need, they would take their resources and figure out a way to give them to that person to meet that need or they would liquidate it, even selling land and houses and liquidating those real estate properties, giving the money to the apostles and the apostles then would distribute that money to the church. This is in no way, by the way, socialism. Socialism is a is a process whereby by mandate those who have resources are required to redistribute those resources to those who refuse to work. So a few provide for the many and um, it, it creates all kinds of problems. This was absolutely voluntary. This was absolutely generated by the work of the Holy Spirit in these people and the love that they had for Christ became a love that they had for the body of Christ and if they saw a need they met the need and then in that context the apostles are bearing testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ it must have been just a wonderful time to be there and there were no needs in the church let's read on it says in verse 36 thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So uh, Luke, the historian, giving us this account, tells us that people were selling property, liquidating it, giving the money to take care of the poor within the church, and that among them was this special man, Barnabas. His name is Joseph, but they nicknamed him Son of Encouragement. We have other testimonies of him in our Gospels because he was always helping those in need. He was evidently a man of resource, and the point is made that he had a particular property that he sold and brought the money, gave it to the apostles, and then they distributed it. And evidently, though it doesn't say it in the text, evidently the word got around about that. Now, they had been taught by Christ to give in secret. They had been taught by Christ that we do not do our alms before men. They had been taught by Christ that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing when it comes to giving, and that we give unto the Lord... But somehow people figured out that Barnabas had given this great property and in giving this property, many people were assisted and everybody just said, isn't Barnabas a great guy? And so we continue with the story, chapter 5, and we're introduced to a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Oh, where did he get that idea? He got that idea from Barnabas. But with his wife's knowledge, verse 2, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did, you, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So you understand what's happening here. Evidently, Ananias and Sapphira 
heard about the buzz in the church about Barnabas selling his property and all of the wonderful things that came of that. And so as a result, they thought about a piece of property they had, only they cooked up a little plan and they said to themselves, you know what we'll do? We will sell the property. And though it doesn't give the details in here, they evidently went then to the church and said, here's all the money from our property. In other words, aren't we really sacrificial? We sold this property and we are giving you all the money. But really they said, tee we kept part of it. But you don't mess around with the old Lone Ranger and you don't mess around with the Apostle Peter. Okay? I'm telling you, this was a time when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a time when they had discernment and he could look right into Ananias' heart and he knew that he was a lion. You're a liar. You're lying to me, man. And so he says to him, why did you do this? When, when you had the land... You could do whatever you want with it. And when you sold the land, you could distribute the money however you wanted. Why did you come in here and tell us you're giving us all the land? You're not lying to me. You're lying to the Lord. And so look what happens. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. God struck him dead. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him in the church cemetery right outside the front door. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. She hadn't got the word that her husband was already buried out in the church cemetery. And Peter said to her, tell me, uh, Sapphira, whether you sold the land for so much. Oh, yes, Mr. Peter. Oh, yes. Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and she breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. I guess so. You know, I don't know what you get out of this. But when I open to the book of Acts and I read about the first months and years of the early church, clearly a core value of the church was generosity. Clearly that springing from the joy of their salvation in Christ and their community and commonness as the body of Christ. They rejoiced together and they took care of one another with great generosity. I also take away from this that God really cares about how we give. That giving really matters to God. And the heart attitude with which we give really matters to God. So will you let that be a foundation to our thinking today? And will you come with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 9? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, please. And uh, let me just explain to you what's happening here. So most of you are aware that there's two letters to the Corinthian church in our New Testament. The first one we call 1 Corinthians, and the second one we call 2 Corinthians. And we know from reading in Corinthians that there were actually more letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to this particular church in Corinth. Um, they are Gentile believers, okay? And Paul had ministered there. And um, when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, this epistle or long letter of instruction that Paul wrote to them the first time, you recognize in 1 Corinthians that the place was a mess. It was a horrible mess. Lots of sin in the church, lots of division, schism, problems, and the whole letter was written to correct them. And when you read 2 Corinthians, you recognize that they got corrected. 
you recognize that they had made spiritual progress. They were a maturing church. In fact, they were a church that the Apostle Paul says he even boasts about them. And when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, listen closely now until you understand what's happening. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 are a part of the letter where the Apostle Paul shifts onto a specific topic, a specific topic. And that topic is giving, and that giving is very specific. So he's writing, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, but he's writing to them about the church at Jerusalem. You have to understand that the church at Jerusalem here in this context is in great need. They were hungry, there was famine, there were issues, they were persecuted, and they did not have resources. And so Paul is writing the church at Corinth to tell them, okay, it's time to take an offering in Corinth, the church and believers in Corinth, to send to Jerusalem. You also need to understand that Paul somewhere along the line, had already talked to them about this offering, and a whole year had gone by, about a year had gone by probably, and he had not taken the, they had not taken the offering or sent the offering. In the meantime, the Apostle Paul had, had spread the word that the Corinthian believers are doing so well, and they love Christ, and they love the church, they're going to take an offering, it's going to be a generous one, and they're going to send it to Jerusalem. A whole year has gone by, they haven't taken the offering, and Paul, in chapter 9, is reminding them, it's time to take that offering and send it, and by the way, I've boasted about you, you better take that offering. So let's read chapter 9 now that you kind of understand a little bit of what's happening, okay? Here's chapter 9. And remember, chapter 8 and chapter 9 go together on this section. And so we're jumping right into the middle of his conversation with them, of his instruction to them about giving. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness. He's commending them. I don't really need to write this. It's superfluous. But he is writing it, so something in him tells him he better write it. And the Holy Spirit's leading him. And I know that you're ready, he says, verse 2, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. The Macedonians had taken an offering, and Paul had received that. And then he told them, the Corinthians are ready to take their offering, and it's really going to be a good offering. And the Macedonians rejoiced that after they took their offering, the Corinthians were going to take an offering saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. People are talking about you and your offering. But I'm sending the brothers, this included Titus, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready for the offering, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an extraction. (laughs) Do you get what's going on here? So the Apostle Paul, spiritual leader over all the churches knows that Jerusalem has a need. He knows that Corinth has promised the offering. He knows they're going to take an offering. A long time has gone by, and they haven't taken the offering. He knows human nature, and he knows that maybe a year ago, some of the money that they intended to give, might not, they might have had to use it on their business or their home or their family or whatever. And so 
So he's boasted about them. He's talked them up. And now it's time for the offering. And so he's telling some spiritual leaders, including Titus, you go up there and get them ready so that when I show up, they're not going to be humiliated that they don't have a very big offering. And especially if some of the Macedonian spiritual leaders come with me and they see after I talk them up to the Macedonians that it's only a piddly offering. Well, we can't have that. We need a good offering. And your first thought is, is that the Apostle Paul is strong arming the church at Corinth. But he's not. This is not at all strong arming because as we will proceed further in our text today, which is our instruction for our church today, you're going to see that the Apostle Paul only wants willing offerings. He only wants cheerful givers. It's wise spiritual leadership is what it is. He's preparing the way of something that they already said they would do, and he's helping them accomplish what they said they would already do and helping them keep their word. So it's just wise spiritual leadership what he's doing. Let's go on. Verse 6, he now begins to remind them of some important principles about giving, beginning with verse 6. The point is this, he says to them. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I think he has it covered there. As it is written, he, that's God, has distributed freely. He's a distributor. And he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Quoting from Psalm 112, verse 9. He who supplies, verse 10, seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. But their approval of this service, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Isn't that an interesting letter that he wrote? That's just fascinating how he approaches this whole thing. So I want to do something a little bit different, at least from in my mind, it's a little bit different. Instead of breaking down every verse and, and, and kind of expositing the passage, I want us really to step back from it a little bit, recognize what's going on in the text here, and let's just click off seven lessons, seven things that we can observe about this as we looked at this whole interesting letter and Paul writing Corinth, Gentiles, by the way, to give to Jews, overcoming racial bias, but the body of Christ, recognizing needs within the body of Christ, and that leads us to point number one on our notes, and it is this. One of the things we have to see as we read this is that the body of Christ is never allowed to not care about the needs of others. The body of Christ is never allowed to not care about the needs of others, particularly within the body of Christ. And so you see it there. You saw it in Acts chapter 4, didn't you? Where they sold and they gave and they observed needs and they took care of one another. 
And so there's a principle there. This is a core value in the church. People who know Christ are defined by generosity. It's a core value. God's people are generous people, and we're never allowed not to care. I've already expressed to you, bullet point one, that the Apostle Paul is challenging the Corinthian believers to give generously to meet the needs of the believers in Jerusalem. Corinth, Jerusalem, long ways away. Gentiles, Jews, who cares? The body of Christ cares. That's who cares. And you can never not care. If you take a minute and flip with me to a proof text over in 1 uh, John chapter 3, a supporting text, and we'll just look up this one of, that, of the three that I listed there. Um, just take a look at 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. It can't get any clearer than this. Look what it says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Who's he? Christ. Christ laid down his life for us as a demonstration of love for us. Look what it says. And therefore we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In the way that Christ laid down his life for us, I now lay down my life for believers in Christ. Isn't that interesting? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Isn't that interesting? His point is, if you are in Christ, and you identify with Christ in the way that Christ laid down his life for us, I now have this core value obligation of love to you to help meet your needs. And in fact, if I have this world's goods, and I see that you need something that I have, and I harden my heart against you, how then could I say the love of God is in me? He say, don't say it. Because if the love of God is in you, you will give it. By the way, it's kind of a no-brainer, but you got to remind yourself, don't give everything away, because then we'll have to give stuff to you. <laughs> give generously. You're going to see in a minute you can't outgive God. You can have a good time trying, they say, but you can never outgive God. But don't give it all away. Don't sell everything because otherwise then you'll become a pauper. That's not the point. You need to sustain yourself. But even as you give generously, you're going to see that God will resupply the seed with which you give. And so the first point that we want to make here of the passage, just reading this text, interrupting Paul's letter to Corinth, we recognize that believers in Christ are never allowed to not care. We must care. Secondly, I want you to see, and I think it comes so clearly through this passage, that there is an appropriate place for spiritual leaders to challenge those with resources to give. Now, some people are really uncomfortable with this. In some ways, the church, largely because of televangelists, the church has a bad reputation of talking about money. Money is a very important topic. And Paul is demonstrating here that there is a place for spiritual leaders to remind the congregation that they need to be generous. I listed a few other verses there. One of the clearest is 1 Timothy chapter 6, for example, where the Apostle Paul, in instructing young Pastor Timothy, says, go to those who are wealthy and remind them that they must give generously. 
I take it that Timothy met with some guys who had money, had a cup of coffee, and over a cup of coffee, he said to them, hey, we got some needs over here in the church. We need you to meet these needs. There is an appropriate place in an appropriate way, in a biblical Christ-centered manner, out of love and proper motivation for spiritual leaders to remind people to be generous. I hope I can do that effectively. Thirdly, I want you to see, as we look at this passage, right away, popping out of it, has to be the principle of sowing and reaping. Look at verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and these many of these people are common folk, and they had a clear understanding of this agricultural illustration. That's a simple concept, isn't it? If you prepare the soil and you have seed and you drop some seed in the soil, that however many seed you put in the soil, later then when you reap the harvest and they grow up, you're going to, whatever it is you plant, that's what you're going to harvest. So he's taking what was probably a proverb of the day. It was probably a common, even secular proverb that people would use, you know, like early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, something like that. It was like, Hey, you reap what you sow. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. If you reap sparingly, you're going to... If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you're going to reap generously. And Paul is taking that proverb and turning it into a spiritual reality to the church. His point is this. The more you give, the more you're going to harvest. Ah, this is the one where the televangelists really rip people off so that they can fly their Learjets across the, around the world. The more you, you know what? He's going to go on and remind them of the right heart attitude, but the point is you cannot outgive God. I think the clear teaching here is that giving to God results in receiving blessing from God. Giving to God results in receiving blessing from God. You know, one of the most miserable Christians you're ever going to find is a stingy Christian. Do you know that? They're not happy people. They might not be Christians, that might be part of the problem. Fourthly, I want, to see, I want you to see in the passage that the attitude with which one gives is very important to God. The attitude with which one gives is very important to God. Look what it says. Let's, um, as, before we get there, let's just pick up and not miss Paul's instruction. This isn't part of your notes, but it's part of the text. Remember, if you, whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully, the end of verse 6, now verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So it's personal. You give personally. Nobody tells you what to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Nobody, see, Paul's not strong-arming them because he even warns against it. If somebody tries to strong-arm you into giving, don't give. It's inappropriate. And do not give reluctantly. The idea of reluctant giving there is the idea that it's begrudging. So you're giving and you're like, eh, I really don't want to give. And in, in, the, in the root of the Greek word there is the idea even that after you've given begrudgingly, I don't really want to give, you walk away from that giving opportunity that you gave begrudgingly and you say, I really wish I hadn't give, given. I really wish I hadn't done that. And so here we are. No one is supposed to tell you what to give. Nobody is to strong arm you into giving. I I got to thinking about this last night after we had printed the bulletin earlier in the week. 
And I thought about our Christmas challenge coming up, and we're kind of reusing the Christmas bulb idea that we've used for a number of years. We would like to hit 650000 total in our Project Nehemiah building expansion fund here. We're trying to pay cash, so we need about 142000 as of today to hit six fifty. And I thought, are we telling people what to give? Does that go against what's in this passage? And I want you to know, in no way are we telling you what to give. We're just trying to create an opportunity where together we can see what we can accomplish as you give willingly as unto the Lord. It occurred to me that it would have been kind of neat because I was trying to think of a new concept for this. They had the old Christmas tree bulb idea, you know. I thought what we should have done is we should have left the whole page blank and just put across there, you decide. Can nobody tell you what to do, not out of compulsion, not reluctantly, only willingly as the Lord puts it on your heart. Well, just pretend that's exactly what it is. It's whatever you want to give. And the opportunity is there for that completely. And it is only intended for you to give cheerfully. And that's our next point, isn't it? Or did we already have that one? This is the third service, isn't it? Um, Number four, the attitude with which one gives is very important to God. So we're working our way through verse seven. We must give as we've decided in our heart. We must not give reluctantly and with regret or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Look at that. God loves a cheerful giver. The attitude with which we, I want you to get this. Just let this sink in. You know, I heard you, Pastor Van. The attitude with which we give really matters to God. I think this is really interesting because, I mean, would you agree with me that God always loves all of us? Isn't God himself love? And God loves all of us. And so you're telling me that the Apostle Paul wrote down here that God really loves a cheerful giver. It's like they're like up here and everybody else is down here when it comes. Well, why didn't Paul write God blesses a cheerful giver? That's, in, that's embedded in the passage. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote, God loves a cheerful giver. Oh, I thought God loved us all, all the time. Always he does. I think that, that what Paul is addressing here is the importance in the mind of God, the attitude and the heart attitude with which the servant of Christ gives. And you think about it. So Paul is telling us that when we give with the right motives and we give generously and we've given for the right reasons, for the right causes, that God says, looky there. Now, he he knew before the foundations of the earth it was going to happen. A little bit of bad theology going on here. But God says, what do you know? Looky there. And then he says, I really love that. You see what I'm saying? Somebody gives, and God says, I love that. I love what just happened. I mean, don't you think that should be really motivational to us? Don't you think it's cool that that you could give in such a way that that moment in the mind and heart of God, he says, I love what just happened. That's pretty cool. That's pretty great. And that's what Paul's saying. God loves a cheerful giver, Corinth, and the Jerusalem church really needs you. Give cheerfully. Make God happy in a way. Fifth, I want you to see that God gives to people 
so that they can give to needs. God gives to people. So when we step back from the passage, one of the things we're understanding, now notice, let's pick it up with verse 8. And look what he says. In verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able, verse 8, to make all grace abound to you, this grace of giving, so that having all sufficiency, having all that you need, he says, in all things at all times, you're not going to run out. You are not going to run out if you give to this offering. You may abound in every good work, for even as it is written, God is a distributor, and God gives to the poor, verse 10, and he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way, which through you will produce thanksgiving. You can see the connection between generosity and thanksgiving. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, God is going to give to you so that you can give to people. So one of the first things we want to see, letter A, is that God rarely meets needs apart from using a middleman. God rarely meets needs apart from using middleman. So I came back from hunting. We have a tradition of eating up at Aunt Shirley's house in, in Aurora, West Virginia. Janet and all the aunts and uncles and cousins and mamaw come and meet us. We have a big feed at noon on Thanksgiving Day. We're all done hunting since Monday to Thursday. We load up, and after dark Thursday night, we drive home, and we get home, and then Friday, I'm back to work because I flipped a day off. And so I'm here alone, and I really like that. I love my staff, but I like being here alone. It's quiet. I can think. I'm studying connecting with people. And so Friday and Saturday, I was here a good many hours. And I would take a break from my desk, and I would walk around our church. I came in here. I walked through. I walked through to 106. I stood and looked out the windows at the modulars. I stood and looked at the, the wall pictures of the building project. And I just looked. And you know this place is just empty when no one's here. And do you know that God had it all to himself All day Friday and all day Saturday, God was here and he had it all to himself. And do you know what got done? Only what I did at my desk. You know when God begins to work? I'm not spouting heresy at all. I'm telling you that when God wants to get something done, he brings people in, he sits them in the chairs, and then they move out of their chairs, and then they do it. Oh, he can do it himself. We know the great man of God, Elijah, right? Elijah stood strong against Ahab and Jezebel, he ran down the mountain, he's exhausted, he hides by the brook Cherith, and he's starving to death, and so God says in the little pea brain of a raven somewhere, a flock of ravens, pick up this meat porcels, and they're butchering over at some farm, the ravens swoop down, grab the meat, and they fly over, and they drop it on a rock right next to Elijah, and Elijah reaches over, blows it off, and eats it, and God fed Elijah with the ravens. Well done, well done. That's how I would want the meat. Well done. (laughs) The children of Israel are in the wilderness. They're miserable. They're starving. They wake up in the morning, push back their tent canopy, and the ground is beautifully covered with this snow-like bread manna, and they have all they want to eat. And then they they complain. They want... Instead of bread, they want some meat. So the wind blows the quail in. We talked about this last week. And the quail come in and they eat meat till it comes out their nose. And God feeds Israel bread and meat, right? 
But do you know, and I know, that almost always, God doesn't feed your neighbor. You know how your neighbor gets fed when your needy neighbor up the street gets fed when you get up and you go to the refrigerator and you get some turkey and dressing and mashed potatoes and gravy and green beans and you fix a nice plate and you put tinfoil over it and you walk through your living room, down the front porch, down the sidewalk, knock on the door and you say, here's a meal for you. Could God feed him? He would, but he almost never does. He almost never does. He uses people. And what Paul is saying here is that God will resource your seed bag so that you can distribute this seed. And God is in the business of filling the bag and you keep distributing the seed. And the point is that God uses you as a middleman and you're his agent for meeting needs. So the church at Corinth was God's middleman for the church at Jerusalem Letter B, when the body of Christ withholds giving, God withholds blessing. That seed bag, when you don't distribute the seed, he says, isn't going to fill up. God is going to fill your seed bag as long as you keep casting seed. When you start to hoard it and store it up, God's going to quit giving it. Thirdly, letter C, which is closely related to what we're saying here, the more one gives, the more God gives back to the giver. So you say, well, I don't know. I, don't, I might go without. I don't know. And then you realize that you have more of everything you've ever had the more you give. How does that work? Which out of that idea gives me number six as I step back and look at the passage, and it is that human intuition and worldly wisdom are pretty contrary to this teaching. Wouldn't you agree with me that basically, by and large, in the world around us, that the world would tell us that wealth comes from grabbing and hoarding not giving. It doesn't mean that people who are outside of, the, of Christ and outside of the church, they can be very generous and they can demonstrate common graces. But by and large, in the world system, the idea is you better grab and you better hold on to and you better not give it away or you're going to run out someday. None of this, by the way, negates planning. In fact, it promotes planning. And so the idea here, number seven, then, is you, you want to recognize as well that there is a direct correlation between generous giving and praise and thanksgiving. There is, a, there is a direct correlation between generous giving and praise and thanksgiving. Let's finish out 11 through 15. It talks about multiplying and increasing. The more you give, the more you'll get. You will be enriched, verse 11, in every way to be generous. The converse, then, is true. If you aren't if you aren't generous, you won't be enriched, is the understanding. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce, what's the next word? Thanksgiving to God. So Corinth, Corinth, when you take your offering that you said a year ago you were going to take, and I'm sending Titus and the brothers to get you ready to give a generous offering, when you take that offering and, you, and we bring that and we take it and distribute it in Jerusalem, guess what? There is going to be one great service of thanksgiving. And so there's a whole lot more going on here than just meeting needs. Letter A, you have to understand that hearts then are going to overflow with gratitude. Hearts will overflow with gratitude. They gave to their need and their hearts now overflow with gratitude. And so out of generosity comes thanksgiving. And then you mark it down, out of their thanksgiving will come more generosity. Because they were good to us, let's be good to our neighbors. 
That's what happens in God's people. Secondly, notice what he says. He said it will produce thanksgiving to God, verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. See, there's more going on here than just supplying the needs of the saints. But it is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. So the second thing that's going on is glory is given to God. Not only thanksgiving going up to God and to the people, but they're glorifying and worshiping God. I can assure you, even though I didn't check on them, I can assure you after all these years that today, six hours ago, in Malawi, in the churches that you support generously and where I have ministered and represented you, that they prayed for you and they gave glory to God for Fellowship Bible Church and they gave thanksgiving to God for your offering. They also prayed for God to give you wealth so that you would keep giving to them. Isn't that a funny prayer? So the church of Jerusalem might have been praying, and this is how they would pray. God, would you please enrich the Corinthians so that the Corinthians will give us a generous offering? Why wouldn't you just pray, God, just give me something? Because God almost always uses middlemen. And the church in Malawi, as I've reminded you many times through the years, is praying that you will be enriched so that you will keep enriching them. And then they give praise and thanksgiving and they glorify God. How great is it that something you give, even out of your surpluses, can motivate someone's heart to do the highest thing that a man or woman could ever do, and that is give glory to God. Wow. That my $20 bill would cause somebody to glorify the God of the universe. That is what is of great value. Wow. Thirdly, the gospel is promoted. Look what he says. They will glorify God because of your submission, verse 13, that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. All of this is happening because you're believers in Christ. And so the gospel is promoted and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you, notice the next thing is they have a, a love Their love for one another grows. They long for you. Corinth had never met Jerusalem. Jerusalem had never met Corinth, and they longed to know each other. I would just love to meet those believers. They gave us that offering, and so they long for one another, and they pray for you. There it is. There is prayer for one another. That's what I was saying about Malawi. They prayed for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, and the heart of God is modeled. So there's a whole lot more going on here, Paul says, than meeting physical needs. Letter A, hearts are overflowing with gratitude. Letter B, glory is given to God. Letter C, the gospel is being promoted through your testimony of Christ. Letter D, love for the body, the greater body of Christ grows. There is prayer for one another that's going on. And finally, the heart of God is being modeled because he's the ultimate giver, isn't he? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's us receiving the gift of God. That's what we're going to be talking about all the month of December is how God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Christmas. So what do we take away from this? I'll tell you, the number one thing that came to my mind, it's number one in our conclusion, is that I think that this teaching should drive us to an orderly, debt-free life. It should drive us and motivate us to an orderly and debt-free life. 
I don't know how many times that somebody has had a need and I've heard about it and I've thought to myself, I think I have one of those. But I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's in the garage, the basement, or the shed. And then when I go digging around, I find that I didn't just have one. I had three of them. And I could have given it to them and they could have it. But because I was in disarray, I couldn't go get it and give it to them. I want my life to be ordered so that there it is. You need it, you can have it. You ask some of the men that are closer around me more often, and I have a saying of saying, if I have it, you can have it, except for my wife and my 270. Uh, My wife, you know, leave her alone. Number two, my 270, that's a deer rifle that I really love. When I say this stuff, somebody should test it and back a truck up to my house and start loading stuff up someday. That's what Paul, John reminded us earlier, right, in 1 John 3. Don't just love in word, but in deed. <laughs> well, if you could prove to me that you really need it, I'll help you load it, okay? All right, as long as it's not Janet's stuff. So. <laughs> she really worked hard putting all that Christmas up yesterday. So come to my house and get the Christmas decorations or something. Do you understand what I'm saying here? An orderly, debt-free life. Do you know that only... only um, um, I didn't write it down, now I'm losing it, um, that of four people who have credit card debt, if four people have credit card debt, three out of four will not give at all to the church. 75% of all people who carry ongoing credit card debt will not give to the church faithfully. It's a reason to get motivated to clear things up, isn't it? Secondly, and I've already kind of emphasized this, haven't I? The affection of God for a cheerful giver should be very motivational, shouldn't it? Remember what I was saying? I love what just happened. The affection of God on a cheerful giver should motivate me to want to revel in the ongoing affection of God for giving. I don't think that's wrong motive. God loves a cheerful giver. I think that's very motivational. Thirdly, the gospel at work in me will always show itself. The gospel at work in me will always show itself. In other words, when you're walking with Christ and the gospel's been doing its work in you, you will not be able to not meet needs. You'll see it and you will and your heart will respond and you will do it. Don't you want to be this kind of church? Don't you want to respond to the Apostle Paul as he calls for us to give an offering and do this? Let's take care of them. I, you said a year ago, Corinth, that you would give a generous offering. I boasted everywhere I went about your offering and now it's time to take that offering. I'm going to send some brothers to get you ready for that offering so that you don't humiliate yourself and you do indeed put your money where your mouth is is it's a great challenge isn't it we live in a very materialistic culture and society it's incredible and we are pressed into the mold it creates all kinds of problems for us and we have christmas coming it's not wrong things are not wrong but may god use these two messages on gratitude and generosity to prepare our hearts to deal with the christmas season a little bit more appropriately I trust they've been helpful to you. Let's stand and close in prayer. And so, Father, as we often conclude, we say we need your help. We need your help to think accurately and biblically. 
Father, may the wellspring of our joy in Christ create great thanksgiving and praise to you. And then out of our thanksgiving and praise, would you help us to be generous, which continues to make more praise and thanksgiving in others. And we're just part of your church and we're filled with joy. We don't belong in this world. We don't need to stockpile for this world. We need to take care of one another. We need to show your love. Show us how to live like this in the middle of our attractive materialistic world. We admit that we're easily drawn into it. And so just help us, Lord, to be cheerful givers. To have our seed bag and distribute that seed generously so that we can reap generously. And we'll watch you refill the bags. What a joy it is to call you our Heavenly Father. What a privilege it is to be your church and to be in Christ. And may it spill over now every day this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.